everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. My name is Jill, and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. Today, I got to sit down and chat with one of my favorite professors, Dr. Kim Davies. Kim is an oceanographer, and she taught me oceanography, which, while it was the hardest class I ever took, it was also one of the most fun. I definitely learned a lot, and it actually really did solidify for me that I wanted to be a marine biologist and focus more on the biology aspect of things. Before we jump into the podcast, I actually did want to promote the website a little bit. So if you haven't yet, go check out the waterwomenpodcast.weebly.com. It's our website. And on there, you can find more information about the women who we do these podcasts on. There's places to email us. So if you are a water woman and are interested in being on the podcast, shoot us an email at thewaterwomanpodcast at gmail.com. With that, let's jump right in and hear all about what Kim does. Hi, Kim. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you for uh, inviting me to come on your podcast, Jill. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so excited that you're on as well. Kim has been one of my profs for a couple of years now. She was my first prof in oceanography, which was one of the hardest courses, but most fun courses I've ever taken. (laughs) And it really gave me a little more insight as to what it's like to kind of be a marine biologist and... There's more than just whales, unfortunately, but (laughs) it's still all cool. So Kim, how about you start off and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Um, So I'm an oceanographer, which is a little bit different than a marine biologist. Oceanography, as you learned in your class, is a really highly interdisciplinary science. Yes. So I do some biology, I do some physics, I do some chemistry sometimes, I do... I do a lot of policy work. Um, So yeah, oceanography is really fun because it's at the interface of all these different um, earth and social sciences. Um, uh, One of the things that oceanography is really concerned about is measuring ocean production. So how much carbon, how much biomass, how many animals, how many plants are actually produced in the ocean. This is really relevant to marine mammals, especially large whales. Because large whales are eating really low down on the food chain on tiny little uh, zooplankton that are reliant on primary production in the ocean. You know, the, the plants that grow in the ocean are what we call phytoplankton. And so in oceanography, we're trying to figure out how much food is actually available to uh, top predators like baleen whales. And so when I'm out at sea and when I'm in my lab, I'm trying to uh, measure how much zooplankton there is out there in the ocean and how um, the ocean currents and the ocean chemistry are working to um, create uh, good feeding areas for baleen whales. Yeah, That is so cool. (laughs) How did you find yourself wanting to do that? Like what was kind of your like, I want to study that specifically? I, um, when I was, I, I was a, undergraduate in biology, marine focused <laughs> school, much like yourself, but on the west coast of Canada. And I wasn't satisfied with biology alone. Um, uh, a lot of my friends wanted to be marine biologists too, and I, I really wanted a career in marine science and not necessarily in marine biology. Um, so I decided to, when I was finished, I was going to branch out to m- try to become more interdisciplinary. And that's what really drew me to oceanography. Um, 
I went to uh, Dalhousie University in Halifax, and their oceanography program, we went through courses in physics and courses in geology and courses in chemistry, and they taught us all about how the ocean works from a biogeochemical perspective, and they taught us about how ocean how the ocean currents move and everything all the other stuff that they don't teach you very often in marine biology courses that that makes the ocean work so i that that was really what got me into it was coming out of a marine biology degree and and wanting to explore the ocean in a more holistic way that's so cool you do get a lot of like the this is how the ocean works but just trust us. This is this is what's happening. And you're like, oh, sure, I get that. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about what like your exact research is like. Looking at the copepods, like how do you do that? Um, I I lately have diversified into a whole bunch of new areas. It's really quite remarkable what's happened. I started off um, studying this one little tiny rice-sized copepod called Calanus vinmarchicus, and I was studying why um, these Calanus vinmarchicus would be really, really concentrated in some areas and not others, and what role the ocean currents and especially the tides played in uh, creating these really dense concentrations because these are areas where seabirds and sharks and whales, everything would be, would be feeding. So we call these areas critical habitats. When, in, uh, when we're studying them for endangered species. So that's what I, I started on, and I'm still working on that. Um, and, and I was really focusing on the endangered North Atlantic right whale. Yes. North Atlantic right whales are probably a very different whale, kind of whale than you think about when you think about a large whale. Humpback whales come to mind, fin whales come to mind. Well, right whales are actually in a different family they are functionally completely different. They forage in a completely different way. Um, so even though they're a large whale, they really are um, are very unique uh, animal. And uh, one of the things that makes them very vulnerable is that they're specialists on these copepods that I was studying. And the cop- these they rely on really shallow concentrations of uh, they rely on these copepods being concentrated at relatively shallow depths and relatively close to the coast, and that puts right whales right in the way of ships and fishing gear, which are two of the most dominant and important threats to the survival of this species. It's only about four hundred of them left. Um, so in in around uh, 2012, I got my PhD in this, and in around that time, we noticed something very weird happening. Right whales were actually disappearing from the Gulf of Maine and Bay of Fundy and Western Scotian Shelf, where we would traditionally be able to find them. You know, we go in a boat for a day from uh, from New Brunswick and you know see a hundred right whales out in the outer Bay of Fundy, and all that ended. And we could not figure out where these animals had gone. There was only 400 of them. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah. So I've spent the last, I, I spent about five years looking for them. And along with a team of researchers from yeah. Canada and the U.S., a whole bunch of us were looking for them. And we found them in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in 2015. So a lot more northern than they had originally been. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. So they they skedaddled from the Gulf of Maine feeding grounds, and they were all the way up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence off of between PEI and the Gaspé in northern New Brunswick. 
And they were feeding there in very large numbers, and there was a whole bunch of fishing gear in that area, mm. especially um, gear, like very strong gear that's used by snow crab fishermen, gear that's yeah. like got really strong ropes on it. So unfortunately, we had a lot of animals die there over the last few years, and a lot. And, and when that started to happen, I really stepped more into the conservation and policy world, as well as the ocean technology world, because all of a sudden, Everybody was like, we need to know where these whales are, and we need to know where they are all the time. Yeah. And we can't put planes in the air all the time. We can't put boats on the water all the time because they can't see at night. When it gets to be fall or winter, they can't go out because of safety reasons or because the weather is too, too crappy. They can't actually see the animals because there's too many waves. So how are we, how are we actually going to monitor these animals? So this is when me and my partners started a new research program called the Whales Habitat and Listening Experiment. And that has evolved into a number of new projects. We use underwater drones that have microphones on them called hydrophones that listen for the whales underwater. And um, they're also equipped with um, uh, acoustic modems. So they'll dive underwater We'll give them some waypoints, so they'll be they'll have like a transect plan underwater that they're moving through, and every couple of hours they'll come up and they'll say beep beep I heard a right whale or beep beep I didn't, and they'll send us some data, and then we can send them new navigation commands, and then they go back down. So these can stay out, uh, you know, we can send one out for six months if we want to, and that really started to revolutionize how we were monitoring for right whales. Yeah. And now I'm working very closely with Transport Canada and DFO, putting these gliders out in areas where they want to close close down fisheries or put speed restrictions on boats in order to mitigate uh, risk to right whales up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and now in the Bay of Fundy and Scotia Shelf as well. Yeah. So that's been like the progression of my research program. So <laughs> interesting. I think the acoustic monitoring is so cool. Like that just like blows my mind that you can just put this like little machine in the water and it's just like, nope, there's a whale here. Don't worry about it. Like, oh, great, thanks. Like, or there's a whale here. Worry, yeah, worry, yeah, worry. Please worry. Actually. <laughs> so you kind of talked a little bit about how the shipping lanes and stuff. So that's kind of one of the real world impacts of like why somebody listening who doesn't have a whole lot of knowledge about marine science should care like mm -hmm. so why do we want to change the shipping lanes why do we want to help these whales um so you know aside from the fact that they're endangered and we have a legislative yeah. responsibility to protect them from harm and harassment um they are you know they're 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 like the killer whales on the east on the west coast they're the killer whales of the East Coast. They are an iconic, um, beautiful animal and a symbol of uh, Atlantic Canada. And um, there is there are things that we can do to mitigate these risks. And because there are things that we can do, and we care about these animals, we should do them. Um, where it get, sometimes can get a little bit challenging is when... Um, there are significant um, impacts on certain industries. Um, uh, you know, it can be hard to find that balance uh, that where uh, industries and right whales can coexist. And, yes. and right now, we're working really hard on that. Um, the governments and NGOs and academics, we're all sort of trying our best to work together to solve those problems with industry, of course, always as a partner. Um, but that's, that's the key, that's the challenge. We're talking about 
um, fisheries like the lobster fishery and the snow crab fishery fisheries that mean uh, livelihoods to many, many Atlantic Canadians. So that's not um, ever something to be taken lightly and those people always need to be involved in a very real and meaningful way in in, uh, any changes that we need to make to their fishery. Um, Or I should say that government needs to make to their fishery. And, uh, you know, shipping is is the same. Um, The Gulf of St. Lawrence is, there's been a lot of focus on the Gulf of St. Lawrence because there's been a lot of ship strikes up there in the past several years um, with right whales. And it's a very tricky spot. Um, It's an inland sea. And uh, between Newfoundland and and, um, Cape Breton, there's a restricted area uh, called the Cabot Strait. And all the traffic has to go through there, and all the right whales have to go through there. So it's a bit of a choke point, and it's um, the traffic that goes through there is going from Europe and the U.S. to Toronto and, and up to Montreal. So it's a very, very important and very significant um, area for, for vessel traffic. So that's one of the areas where we're hoping to make... Uh, well. You know, there's some uh, advancements being made on mitigation in, in that area. Yeah. yeah. And so there, it's tricky. There has been a lot of changes in shipping lanes around here, at least, that, like, have been very public. So it's nice to know that, like, something is happening. And you guys are working. <laughs> you're doing something. It's coming, too. Yes, yes. I've been engaged in, uh, with, in a lot of consultations with Transport Canada and Fisheries and Oceans and, and so many of my colleagues trying to figure this out. Um, one of the biggest challenges is that um, when a right whale uh, or any large whale is struck by a ship, um, it is, I, it's almost impossible unless someone actually saw the strike um, to determine um, where or when that accident happened because those darn ocean currents <laughs> they really move yeah. can move carcasses really quickly away from a from a strike location and so last year we had uh, quite a few uh, ship strike deaths and carcasses turning up but we didn't actually know where the, the strikes took place whether they took place in the shipping lanes or out of them yeah. what size of boat what speed of boat was would be implicated so it's very challenging um, to try to manage when you can't identify the, the cause or the source. Yeah. That would be very difficult. <laughs> but that's why we train students like you and other <laughs> students at this school to, you know, because someday you'll be in those positions where you're, you know, you're going to be involved in making those kinds of decisions. That's terrifying. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know whether to be excited or scared about that. <laughs> that's a lot of trust. Yeah. So a typical day for research of you, like when you're out on the field, what does that look like? What are you doing? Um, so I go out to sea pretty often. Um, this year, I'll, our lab will be out at sea for almost three months. Um, and when we go to sea, we go with a team, always with a team, you know, five, six, seven researchers. And I, I work very closely with partners, right? So um, I've got collaborators coming up from the U.S., from the New England Aquarium, collaborators at Dalhousie, and we all share ship time. So we all go together as a team, and it takes months and months of planning to uh, get these cruises together. Uh, and when we go out, we, we do a few things. Um, we uh, 
run density estimation surveys. So we'll like run transects with our boat and be looking for the right whales. Uh, we will um, have oceanographic equipment on the back of the deck that we'll be deploying uh, to measure the concentration and distribution of uh, copepods and other uh, oceanographic characteristics to describe that can describe right whale habitat. And um, we'll be putting over acoustic uh, instruments to listen for the animals. My new PhD student, Gina, is going to be doing aerial drone work this year. So cool. she's going to be actually flying drones over top of the animals to try to measure their thermal biology using infrared uh, cameras. So yeah, there's all kinds of different activities that we undertake. And we kind of, when we're out there, depending on the team that's out, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do whatever dance we need to do that day to get the work done. So there's real no typical A, B, C, D kind of day. It depends on the team and who needs to do what. But yeah, and, and, and what kind of weather we have really yeah. determines what activities we'll be doing that day. But um, our research crews, we combine uh, whale work with oceanography work. That's so yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. That would be a pretty fun trip. It is. <laughs> um, it can be very intense. Last year, um, when we left, uh, shore, uh, we had reports of four dead right whales in 48 hours, and we had reports of entangled animals. So the first day that we were out, our colleagues on the boat were attaching a satellite tag to the trailing gear behind a behind an entangled whale, and so you can also you know it can also be uh, you can also become involved in some way in wet rescue operations yeah. for uh, for for the animals, um, which. Uh, you know, is is something that we never we hope we always hope it's not going to happen, but it's happened a few times now. <laughs> yeah. Well, growing up, did you always know that you wanted to do something with the ocean? Like you said, you realized during your undergrad that you didn't want to do marine biology, but did you always kind of have that? Like, oh, I think I want to be somewhere around the ocean. <laughs> no, no. I grew up on Vancouver Island, and. I never went on the ocean. I know this sounds weird. Vancouver Island is surrounded by ocean, but <laughs> the only time I ever went on the ocean was when I went to the fair on the ferry to go to Vancouver, um, you know, to see my families uh, over there. But um, so I never saw a whale. I never saw. Like, I never saw killer whales because I lived inland in the middle of the forest, right? Um, so I was very much like rivers, forest, very outdoorsy, fishing, horseback riding, that sort of thing, but never ever envisioned myself um, becoming an, an oceanographer when I was little. Um, when I came to university, I was an English major. Interesting. I, I wanted to be a novelist, um, and I actually got um, really scared. <laughs> Um, in my first year that I would never uh, make money as an English uh, teacher and that I would, you know, I, I would be in school forever. Turned out I was in school for like 11 years, but back then that I would, you know, if I had known I was going to be in for 11 years, I never would have done it. You know what <laughs> I mean? Um, and so I didn't really um, get into marine science until... I um, started to volunteer at a place called the Institute of Ocean Sciences in Sydney, British Columbia. And I started as a hydrographer. A hydrographer is somebody who monitors the tides and the currents, right? So if you go to the Canadian Hydrographic Service website and you there's like a tide gauge 
at this at the shore it'll tell you like what what stage the tide is in and people need to know that yeah um and so uh that's what i did i started working for some hydrographers and then yeah it all you know i started working as a diver i thought i wanted to be a scientific diver so i worked as a diver for a long time um and then i gave that up uh realizing that I wasn't physically like capable of being underwater uh, for several hours a day for the rest of my life. It was like too much. <laughs> so I went, you know, I went kind of, I, I did poke around at a lot of different yeah. jobs before I landed on uh, marine biology, I guess, or oceanography. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's so funny that you're like, yeah, I didn't know if I'd make money in being a novelist, so you decided to go to the very rich marine <laughs> biology standpoint. Where I know, what was I, you know, 18-year-old mind, I don't know what, what was going through it. You know. Did you have anyone that, like, really inspired you or, like, role models after you found marine ocean science? Oh, yeah, yeah. Verena Tunnicliffe was my honors advisor. She's a benthic ecologist at University of Victoria, and she was... She's a huge mentor to me. She's uh, started the Venus and Neptune undersea networks on the West Coast. And she sort of created that. She's such an innovator. And she was, you know, she's one of these like pioneers that was doing oceanography and interdisciplinary marine science when it was like her and men. You know what I mean? Like she was one of the early women that was involved in all of that. So it was very, very inspiring. Um... And she got me into oceanography, really, because the project that she gave me for my honors was on ocean acidification. Oh. Um, and that really put, put me on the path of, of, uh, of doing oceanography. Yeah, That is awesome. Yeah. That's great that you had someone in that field of men to look up to. Because <laughs> to, I find now there's like so many women in marine biology that like I can find someone who I can just look up to, like, having props <laughs> like you and Cassidy and Heather, like, it's just so nice to know that, like, hey, you can go, you can go to be a prop, it doesn't matter if you're a girl, it doesn't matter, it's really exciting to have. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more female mentorship in biology, there's still not as much in oceanography as I would hope, but there are some, yep, well, it's maybe, changing. Maybe I'll be convinced in the next, like, two months to switch away from marine mammals and into oceanography, you never know. <laughs> You can always get into it <laughs> through the back door, yeah. right? I had uh, one of my first early uh, co-op jobs as an undergraduate student. I was working uh, for a guy named John Ford on the West Coast. And he, you know, I was matching humpback whale tails. And it was like an internship. Yeah. And I was That's like... That's exactly what I just did for my internship. this is what marine mammal biology is, I am never doing this again as long as I live. I am, do not want to do marine mammals because all my friends want to do it. I was I like closed the door and said never marine mammals ever again, and then it turned out that my PhD advisor Chris Taggart, you know when I when I came to him he was a fisheries oceanographer. That's what I really wanted to be was a fisheries oceanographer. He said, well I don't have any fisheries oceanography, but I've got this whale habitat project. And I was like, okay, well are there any whales in it? He said, well you can get away with you know mostly not. <laughs> dealing with the whales we're really dealing with the habitat and with the copepods and then gradually you know I came around and realized that there's a lot of good science to do on marine mammals that is so funny because I had almost <laughs> the same experience of like I was matching the humpback whale tails and I said why do I want to do this why is this what I want to do 
then I got to vote on the boat and like hang out with the whales. So I was like, yeah, never mind. This yeah. makes sense. Yeah, data processing is always hard. It's even it's it's as tedious in oceanography as it is in in whale oh, tail man. matching. It really is. <laughs> so you really didn't get away from that then? No, no. I mean, with uh, when it comes to data processing, there's always some level of. You know, uh, the the good science comes when you're repeating thing the same yeah. thing over and over, right? And getting your robust sample size. So unfortunately, because that's the least fun part. But <laughs> the answers that you get are fun. Yeah. Going back a bit to your research, have you had any like really surprising or like exciting or cool finds? Like, what have you been finding? Finding these whales in the Gulf of Saint Lawrence has been groundbreaking and life changing, and. Um, so I think that's been probably the most significant event uh, of my career. So do you think it's because their food moved up there is why they moved the up there? The food didn't move, and I think that's a common mis- yeah. misconception. These are plankton, right? They don't move. They drift on ocean currents, right? Okay. The pro- we think the productivity of the food in the Gulf of Maine, Scotian Shelf region went down. But okay. the productivity of the food in the Gulf of St. Lawrence either either didn't go down, although the signs are pointing that maybe it did go down, or maybe didn't go down as much. Yeah. Um, because it's an inland sea, and the ocean the oceanographic regime in that area is a little bit different than the Gulf yeah. of Maine. It's co- colder up there and things like that. So, um, yeah. So so there's it's very been all been very interesting, and I think that now. Um, I expect changes in right whale distribution to occur kind of on a 10-year time scale, and I don't know what's going to happen next, where, you know, we've only been studying these animals since the 1980s, you know, in earnest, and um, we don't know the extent, really, of their range or what they're capable of. Um, So who knows where they may go next. Interesting. Yeah, it sort of opened up a whole new world. I'm really glad you cleared that up because... Like, that's just something I've always been told is that, like, oh, yeah, they, like, moved up there because there was food available, which makes sense and kind of is how you phrased it, but it also can be construed as, like, oh, the food is not here anymore and it moved up here, <laughs> yeah. where it's, instead it's, like, the food's no. still here. It's just not as plentiful. No. That's right. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. I'm, I'm glad I know that now as someone who kind of is the whale girl. <laughs> nice to learn. All right, so before we head off, Kim, is there anywhere people can find you or follow along with your scientific findings or anything like that that you want to share? Yeah, people can follow me on Twitter. I have a Twitter account. I go through, like, um, phases where I tweet a lot, especially in the summer when I'm doing field work, and phases when I don't tweet, tweet a lot, which is usually when I'm teaching, <laughs> like right now. Um, but we, And uh, my graduate student, Gina, also has a Twitter account that people can follow. Um so yeah, that's a good place to go. Check you out. And yeah. what is there? What is your Twitter? Just your name? Oh, it's Kim underscore Davies twelve. Okay, perfect. <laughs> They'll go check you out there. Well, good. thank you so so much for being on the podcast today, Kim. I'm really excited yeah. to have you. Another big thank you to Kim for being on the podcast this week. It was a lot of fun getting to sit down and talk with one of my professors in a more casual setting and less about academics and more about what they do for their research. As always, you can follow along with the Water Women podcast on any and all social medias. You can find us on Instagram at the Water Women Podcast, on Facebook at the Water Women Podcast, and on Twitter at the Water Women Pod. 
And you can check out our website, thewaterwomenpodcast.weebly.com. And until next time, stay salty.